Welcome in to another episode of the Esports Network podcast, presented, of course, by Esports Network. I'm your host, Mitch Dreams, and today we're talking to Scott Kelly. He's the CEO of Black Dog VC, and one of Black Dog's companies is a company called VC Fast Pitch, which is hosting an esports-focused pitch meeting on February 28th. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. I'm really excited to talk to you. This conversation, we're going to go over uh, investing in esports pretty generally. We're going to look at what esports companies stand out and what he'll be looking for at esports fast pitch later this month. And uh, we're talking a little bit about Infamy, which is one of the recent investments and is doing daily fantasy for esports. So I'm going to take this uh, conversation in a whole lot of directions. So Scott, first off, what are you most looking forward to at esports fast pitch? Well, I think the one thing we're really looking forward to is it's it's really become an offshoot of our successful fast pitch events, and you know we're going to have hundreds of uh, gamers, uh, investors in esports and gaming, uh, influencers, professionals in the space. So it's going to be you know a great opportunity for up and coming esports and gaming entrepreneurs to really get the, the valuable contacts and information they need, whether it's to find investors to invest in their company. Uh, partners on the marketing or go-to-market strategy or even development partners. So we're, that's the thing we're most excited about is just connecting uh, some exciting, fast-growing esports and gaming companies with the right people. What were some of the highlights from, you said it's an annual event, uh, in past iterations, what were some of the highlight companies that stand out when you think back on those years? Well, this is the first uh, esports-focused event uh-huh. that we've done. We've uh, With our VC Fastpitch, we've done uh, 25 events over the last several years, uh, raised about $40 million last year for early stage companies. And you know, the, the, the focus has really been with our events is that you can get good practice at other events. When you come to our events, it's not about winning a prize. It's not about getting feedback, although you get that. It's actually getting in front of real life active investors. And that's the thing that's been really exciting for us is that uh, you know, we've had a, you know, several companies uh, just in the last uh, few months uh, get term sheets and raise capital from investors. And now we're looking forward to do that with our upcoming event in February. Awesome. What changes with your approach when you have all these different events and you've run this event so many times? Uh, is anything different about this esports focused event? Things you're, you're working on to make sure you amplify uh, in different areas than those previous events? Yeah, I think that there, you know, there's, there's going to be a little broader focus. Uh, although there's going to be plenty of opportunities for companies to network and pitch to investors, we're also going to have professionals uh, in the space uh, talking about, you know, for example, esports versus traditional sports on one panel. We're going to have an East versus West that compares how esports and gaming is working in Asia versus North America. Uh, and then we'll have some pretty interesting panels from some celebrities and influencers. So uh, there's great opportunity not only to find the right investor, but to find uh, other partners and other opportunities. That's probably the one main difference. That's very cool. Those panels sound sound really interesting. Uh, from an investment perspective, what are you looking for in an esports company? Is this going to be like a a learning deal? You say you're going to get real venture so it's a you go to a panel and at the same time you're holding pitch meetings is that sort of how the format of the event works yeah well it's okay, kind of basically what happens is we'll have five panels throughout the day on various topics related to esports and gaming in between that we'll have some uh, fast-growing companies do five-minute presentations on stage in front of our investor panel and the rest of the audience and then we'll have breakout a breakout room 
where the, uh, the companies can dialogue one-on-one with the investor panelists. Uh, they'll also have booths uh, along the side of the venue in you know, order to showcase their product or uh, their game. And then uh, we're actually going to have a, an after-hours kind of VIT setting where it's a one-on-one conversation because it's really important that, you know, when you, when you go out and do fundraising, you have to do fundraising first. You have to establish these relationships with investors. And that's, that's going to be the critical part that um, esports and gaming entrepreneurs should be able to accomplish at the event. Definitely. Friendraising. That's a good term. I hadn't heard that one before. <laughs> That's from my old nonprofit days. <laughs> I love it. So when you only have five minutes on the stage for the fast pitch aspect of it, what do you think is most important for these companies to communicate? They've only got five minutes up there. So what should they be doing right off the bat? Well, I think the main thing is when we do the events, we really have a, uh, a set group of things they should accomplish. One, they should identify the problem and why it's a big problem, what's their solution and why it's better than any other solution there. Uh, second, thirdly, how they make money. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be important. Fourth, how they put this product or service in front of people. What's the door to market strategy? Talk about the team and then ask, you know, what are they looking for? Uh, is it capital? Is it partnerships? Is it advisors? Uh, those are the, the main points that I recommend everyone doing a five minute presentation. If the goal, quite frankly, is not necessarily, it's not short time, they're not going to write a check at the end of the day, at the end of your pitch, but the idea is to give them enough information to want a second meeting. Definitely, and hit a wide-ranging audience there so you can really get those friend-raising connections that eventually lead to the checks down the road. You don't know who in the audience you're necessarily speaking to at any one point, uh, just hoping that your words are hitting somebody out there, right? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting you say that because we had an event in San Francisco about eight months ago and we had someone that was in the audience, not part of our investor panel. He, he, he called me three weeks later and said he invested in one of the companies that I presented. And then he actually introduced the company to his friend who happened to be Sergey Brin of Google. Oh. So you never know who's in the audience. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good friend to have. It's just, uh, exactly. oh, I introduced you to my friend. Yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's uh, Sergey Brin. It's a good guy. That's really interesting. So on the flip side, that's sort of what you're looking for. What are some of the biggest mistakes some companies are making uh, when they attend an event like this? Is it uh, not having the numbers ready? Is it going in and not really making it clear what their company does? What are some of those consistent mistakes you see coming up time after time? I think the main thing, one, is obviously you have to know your numbers and you have to know your competition. You know, if anyone says there's no competition, the lights go out on the presentation. So those are two critical things. But also it's very important to do some homework before and before the event. You know, we'll list the investors at our events. You know, I've had, we've had folks that had great success because they reached out to them maybe on LinkedIn and not pitched them, just gave them a, hey, I look forward to seeing you at the event. And then it's follow up. You know, when you go to these events, the vast majority of people don't follow up within 24 hours. If you're sincere and you're serious, you're going to do your homework to make sure by the time you get to the event, they at least have a, a, a name association with you, and you're going to want to follow up because you know, investors are a moving target, and you've got to continually stay in front of them. And, and those are the critical things that I think are important to be successful. That's good advice, and that's good advice for really any industry. If you meet with somebody who has something you want, whether it be a connection, uh, money, 
and they give you some amount of their time, always, always follow up. My dad hammered that into me back when I was in high school and it paid off uh, in spades through my, my college years uh, with professors and with some business connections. So that's just good advice always. Emails are out there if you can find them. Like if you go to vcfastpitch.com, you can see all the investors and I believe all their emails as well if you wanted to do some groundwork before. And nobody's mad that you send an email, right, before the the event. Worst case, they just don't answer it or don't read it. But it's never like, oh, this, this person sent me an email. Well, they're off my list, right? Well, I think the thing is you, you, have, to, you have to have some level of professionalism with your email. What you don't want to do is connect with somebody on LinkedIn who's an investor and then seven seconds later pitch them with an attachment to your, your pitch deck. That's, that's just terrible. Obviously, you want to be able to engage them, get to know them. And there's an old saying, you know, if you ask for advice, you'll get money. If you ask for money, you'll get advice. <laughs> and so establish relationships first. That's a, yeah, that's a really good point. If it's a mass email, you're not supposed to be sending hello to whom it may concern, like personalize your emails, show that you know what company you're talking to and why you've reached out to somebody. My LinkedIn for some reason has been just filled with cryptocurrency and podcast advertisers. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's driving me crazy. I don't know what to do with these people. They're, they're just constantly sending me messages. Do you need podcast editing? I'm like, no, I don't. I, I don't need your services, person. But um, I, I had someone connect me on LinkedIn last month, and before I got a chance to respond to the first message, he had said 12 of them. Eight of them had four attachments each. It's, it's exhausting. Sometimes there's people who are like, oh, will you do this podcast with me? We should do this podcast right now. I'm like, well... You haven't told me why we should do a podcast. You're just like, do this on my company. And I'm like, I'm right. And they're like, it's, it's mutually beneficial. I'm like, no, it's not. It's not at all. I don't know what you're, you haven't shown me anything you're offering me. And I am not choosing to cover you. I'm just giving you free advertising and you're demanding it. Right. Exactly. So talking about crypto a little bit, I wanted to ask you in the investment space in esports, it's a little bit tricky right now because there's a lot of money entering the space and whenever there's a lot of money entering a space people naturally cry bubble do you think that's a worry in the esports industry that there's too much money entering and it won't be able to support all the companies coming out or is all this money entering from a good location well that, that's a good you make that point because the reality is my my first run at this business was in the beginning of the dot com and the reality is when you have a new industry, everyone goes into it at a 45-degree angle. And I think it becomes incumbent upon investors and entrepreneurs to really, you know, make sure they do their homework and understand that when you have a growth industry, you know, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go on a very high curve up, and then it's going to flatten and go down and find its middle point and find a success point. So I think, you know, you, you find that happening, you can find that happening now in the the cryptocurrency space, esports, the CBD space. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I think the reality is is that if you're an entrepreneur, if you have a solid business, and if you can if you can run your business without the capital, then your then ability to be successful and eventually get that capital uh, is even more more of a possibility. Definitely, it's uh, it's all about you know, how you run your business. I mean, you look at the dot-com bubble, which is the most famous bubble we have maybe other than cryptocurrency. And yes, it, a lot of people lost a lot of money, but now 20 years later, all the biggest companies 
in the world came out of that bubble. So it, yes, things went too fast, but at the same time, everybody was clearly aware that this was going to be the next big thing. It just too much money injected. And sometimes, like you said, it needs to go up and then come back down to weed out some of the companies that aren't prepared to, to do well in this space. And then from those ashes rise the actual giants that will dominate the space in the years to come. Well, at the bottom of the dot-com era, you know, Amazon was a, a single-digit price stock, and now it's a trillion-dollar company, you know? And at that same time, there were large companies like mp3.com, pets.com, and Webband that had billion-dollar valuations, and the only thing that remains is the stock puppet for pets.com. Right. So what a... Do you think there is a correction incoming? Do you do you think we're going at a place where we're we're on a rise that it's going to come back down in a little bit? Well, yes and no. I think obviously there's a lot of smaller entries coming in, and I think the thing is is that you know if you're any entrepreneur, focus on running a profitable business. And I tell entrepreneurs, let's assume there's no capital that you're ever going to get. How are you going to build your business? And I think the problem we have today, as much like you have a dot-com era, they seem to think everything is predicated on raising millions of dollars. And I think that's probably, you know, to some fault of the folks up in the Bay Area. Uh, I think you run extremely profitable companies uh, and be able to build a business on some point when you sell it. You, you don't have 2% of the company, you own, you know, 92% of the company. Uh, and I think the reality is that's what all the experts have to think. Now that said, I think as you're looking to raise capital, you have to be strategic. I think, especially at the early stage, you want, you don't want to have dumb money. You want to have someone who understands the space and someone who provide more than just capital. Maybe it's access to new business opportunities or access to development or access to additional investors. And I think that's the thing that really separates successful entrepreneurs that raise capital uh, versus unsuccessful, is you've, you've got to find the right investor and you've got to operate a business with the assumption that you're not going to raise capital and additional capital just puts kerosene on the fire. Yeah, it's it's really interesting in esports because you see some numbers that are really unheard of, basically, besides maybe the dot-com bubble, uh, where it's like uh, when Forbes releases their esports orgs uh, valuations, they'll put values of upwards of $300 million for your Cloud9s and your uh, biggest esports orgs out there. And the revenue numbers for these esports orgs are more like 15 mil to 20 mil. And it's just that sort of discrepancy between revenue and value is basically unheard of in any other sector on the planet. So it's I think that's what's giving people a lot of concern with it is like, where is this money eventually going to come from? Right. Well, I, I agree. There's, there's a lot of capital uh, and there's a lot of access to capital. Uh, and again, raising capital could be a great thing. But it, it obviously comes with you know, obligation. It comes with risk. And I think both from the investor and the entrepreneur standpoint, you've you, you got to do it from a timing standpoint. You have to do it when the numbers and everything makes sense. And I think part of what we try to do at our firm is we work with companies like one of our companies you mentioned, Infinite. You know, we've been working with them for about three months to really help them develop their go-to-market strategy, build their management team, and begin to build a business that's actually generating revenue. And we're only, they're only now starting to have conversations with investors. So, and again, they can continue to operate the business and be patient as opposed to having to desperately raise money and, and, and really deal with the negative consequences of that. 
Definitely, yeah. And to, uh, we won't get too deep on the, the different things investigating esports. I know most of our listeners do not have millions of dollars to invest, unfortunately. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you about some of the different sectors that pose big opportunities in the esports space. Uh, and I notice from your uh, investor list, some of the companies you've invested in, which are like Megafans Esports, uh, Dunright Games, and Infamy Esports, and I noticed two sectors that you're focusing on pretty decently, and that's mobile esports and betting e- on esports. I think betting is one, but mobile esports has multiple companies uh, in your portfolio. So, what's the opportunity? Uh, what's the opportunity you see in the mobile gaming space? Because I see the same thing uh, with a lot of revenue and a lot of access in mobile gaming. I'm curious what stands out about that space to you. Well, I think the mobile gaming space is really just untapped. Uh, to you know, PC and, and console gaming, it, it's, it, it's very small in, in number relative to those, but the growth has been exponential. You know, I have a 15-year-old and a 21-year-old. Uh, we have seven TVs in our house, and they'll sit in their room and look at their phone or play on their phone. You know, the phone is becoming mobile. It's becoming the place where everybody engages and everyone gets involved. So obviously mobile it has significant opportunities, and, and honestly, I still think we're in the very early innings of that growth. It's, what's, what's really cool about mobile gaming is how quickly phone technology has evolved. I mean, even five years ago, a mobile game is like Flappy Bird. It's Candy Crush. It's these games that are very simple, very easy to render. And now you have games like PUBG, which is 100 players all drafted into one map. Uh, Fortnite, Call of Duty, they all have mobile aspects. And that's a crazy progression to go from these very simple 2d games to these 3d shooters that have to render an entire map uh and play a competitive multiplayer and that's happened in just about five years so you can definitely see that the growth of mobile technology is really going to allow for a mobile gaming to take a much bigger foothold in the greater esports industry coming up absolutely absolutely again it's, it's just the technology has caught up with mobile gaming and it's only going to get even more so you know, going forward. Yeah, and you see these kids, like you mentioned, they're crazy with their phones. Like when I play on my phone, I can't control anything. I get frustrated. I'm used to playing with a controller. But even kids just, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old, they've had a smartphone for so long that it's just second nature to them. It's so Absolutely. they can make things happen with their phone because they've just been plugged in to it for basically their entire lives that I'm like, I have no idea how you possibly could control your crosshairs like that. It just, it, it drives me nuts, but it works for them. And that's all that really matters. Exactly. So then the other sector you mentioned uh, is betting on esports, And this is a huge growth opportunity. Mark Cuban pretty famously has stayed out of most esports investments, uh, save from a pretty big investment in Unicorn, which is a, uh, esports betting platform, and that was back in 2015. So I'm curious, where's the betting world at? We know we just had the Supreme Court decision that legalizes states uh, sports betting, uh, turns into a state's decision, I should say, uh, in 2018, and now 11 or 20 states, I think we're up to actually, uh, states have legalized sports betting. So where is the the betting landscape on at esports? You know, it's pretty pretty early stages, it feels like, but there's got to be a huge growth opportunity there. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the reality is for, for years, if not decades, 
you know, uh, betting has been, you know, proliferating in in Asia and Europe. Mm-hmm. And I think the United States has finally realized that, okay, there's tax revenue to be had, and there's opportunities to, to collect those tax revenues. So I think, you know, you've, you've, you've seen a transition from traditional, uh, you know, real estate-based casinos to, to online casinos, and now you're seeing this in the sports betting world. And I think uh, I, I would be surprised if the landscape where sports betting doesn't get exponentially greater, you know, in the next 12 to 18 months. You know, states, you know, much like marijuana, states are finding themselves, you know, on the outside looking in on revenue and, and income opportunities uh, from a tax standpoint, and they're not going to stand still and, and let someone else take advantage of it. Right. There's just so much money and people, especially with the internet becoming so ubiquitous, people be like, oh, I can you know, log, log on through a VPN and be able to bet through an Asia company or something like that. It's become very easy. They're like, okay, we need to, if people are going to do this anyway, we should at least get our tax money off of it. Let, uh, let uncle Sam get paid. Right. Exactly. And I think that's really where the opportunity is. And you know, the technology is making it, uh, you know, more efficient to do, to bet on anything, uh, much like, you know, DraftKings and, and traditional sports is happening in, in esports. It's obviously esports is growing faster than any other sport on the planet. And you know, you can go to Vegas and, and there's there's plenty of money being made on betting on the Super Bowl, but now there's, you know, increasing amounts of capital uh, being placed on bets in esports. And I think that's just a trend that's gonna continue. Yeah, I actually wanted to bring that up uh, with you because I live in Las Vegas. I just moved here a couple weeks ago, as my listeners know, because I keep plugging the city. Uh, and I was on the strip last week and I was at the Mirage talking to one of the ticket writers and he's like, nobody on the strip is touching esports right now uh, for a couple reasons. But I thought that was really interesting. Do you think Vegas eventually brings esports into the fold or it just feels like there's a the, they don't like the lack of regulation. They don't like the young age of some of the participants and they worry about, you know, sketchy gambling practices like we've seen in college hoops pretty famously in the 80s and other industries where uh, betting has hurt the integrity of the game. I think they're worried about that in esports a little bit. Do you think that's an issue? Well, I would tell you it's really the contrary. You know, in Las Vegas, you have some of the largest esports events going on. You have Evo that happens at the Mirage. At the Luxor, they just built you know a, a large arena dedicated uh, to esports events. So I think the reality is... I. They see it as a an opportunity to engage the tourists and create content for those tourists, and it's only going to be a matter of time before they realize that okay, there's an opportunity to go back to our traditional revenue model with esports. So again, I think you know Las Vegas has been a hub for a number of esports and gaming events and activities, and so I'd be surprised if it's not happening already. It's it would be coming soon. Yeah, it feels like it's in the early stages. I, but I'd have to guess is that probably they don't have enough confidence in the odds makers and the people that uh, they have setting the lines. Obviously, the casino doesn't want to put any lines out there that a sharp can be like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make that money. And with, there's so many people that know CS:GO, that know League of Legends, that know Dota, like the back of their hand, they could easily pick out lines that are poor. And so for a casino to insulate themselves from some risk, they really need to be like, okay. We're ironclad in these. We know what betting habits are like. We know 
where people are going to place money. We know uh, how to adjust the line with different things happen in games. You're going to do live betting. So I feel like it's they're in a research stage right now. It's definitely just a matter of time. But Yeah, I would agree. And rather, you're seeing a trend in you know, more peer-to-peer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, gambling too. Obviously, you know, people sitting on teams, competing each other in prize pools. You know, you're seeing that in a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, uh, mobile uh, gaming opportunities too. So I think, you know, again, I, the, the trend is, is really moving in that direction. And, and much like I mentioned with other states, you know, trying to get their uh, hands around the op- opportunity to generate revenue in gambling, uh, I'd be surprised if uh, Las Vegas doesn't find a way to take advantage of that, too. I just realized maybe I should go to the casinos and see if I could become an odds maker for esports. That seems like a lucrative... <laughs> well, you know, there are, you know there's, there's actually a lot of that happening already. Uh, you've got uh, a number of some of the more famous you know, bookmakers uh, you know, putting together uh, those kinds of odds. You know, it's like in the Super Bowl. You can bet on, you know, what the coin toss is. You can bet on, you know, who got the first completion. You can do, and with these boards and gaming, you can bet on who had the most kills or who had the most, you, you can find aspects to that. Uh, and, and the reality is, um, you know, Vegas was built on people's motivation to uh, guess correctly. And I think uh, this is just an opportunity for them to, another opportunity for them to do so. Yeah, and they definitely need to evolve a little bit. Like we mentioned, the sports betting landscape is changing pretty rapidly, so it's increasingly important for Las Vegas. It's no longer just the the gambling hub where the only place you can come to place a legal sports bet. And now, you know, 20 states have legalized sports betting, so now they have to figure out their new identity. Actually just changed their slogan. I don't know if you saw that, uh, but it's no longer what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It is... Uh, right. what what happens in Vegas only happens here, or something like that. Right, uh, right, right. So clearly they're going through a branding thing. Uh, and speaking of yeah. the sports betting world changing, I want to talk to you a little bit about Infamy Esports. So that's one of the companies you're invested in, and it's uh, Daily Fantasy, which is sort of this yep. industry that, prop, that came about in this legalization gray area uh, with, it's a skill game, but it's, really real money gambling on sports and it is skill you have to pick each individual player but DraftKings and FanDuel were able to operate in a little gray area ish where it's a way for people to bet on sports and I'm curious what role do you think daily fantasy is going to play generally in the greater sports betting world is this always going to be a thing that exists or if legalized sports betting do you think uh, when 50 states can all bet on Sporting events, do you think people are going to then just choose to bet on lines, or will the daily fantasy format uh, always be around? I think the daily uh, fantasy format obviously has legs, because I think there is an opportunity to get immediate gratification, and there's opportunity to, you know, really, you know, bet often, and get, you know, intelligent data to continue to do so. So I think the trend uh, in daily fantasy is only going to continue upwards, in my opinion. I tend to agree. I play a lot of fantasy football, and I turn to daily fantasy when my team sucks. So I draft the players I wish I drafted uh, two months ago. Right, right, right. Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I think daily fantasy allows you the opportunity to, to work with that uh, that thing. Right. So Infamy Esports starting in Fortnite. It's an interesting choice of first game to partner with. 
Uh, how does the Fortnite daily fantasy work, and why did the company, if you are, uh, if you know why they they chose this, but why Fortnite as the starting game, then expanding to other titles in the future, but starting with Fortnite? Well, I think, well, I think from a strategic standpoint, you know, Infamy wanted to make sure they got it right with one game before they launch into other different games. And, that's, and I'm a big believer in making sure you understand your business model within one vertical or within a, a, a tight um, uh, sphere of influence and then expand from that. So strategically, their, their goal was to do that. Much like, you know, Bezos started in books and now he's the master of everything. Um, so again, I think strategically, that was the reason why we started with that. Now obviously, Fortnite obviously has an opportunity to scale because of its, you know, uh, you know, rapid growth and large database uh, of users, and I think the game itself provides an opportunity to bet on or compete against on a couple of different lines. Obviously, you may have hundreds of people playing in a Fortnite tournament, and you, you can obviously bet who's going to be the ultimate winner, but you can also bet on certain aspects of the game, who has the most kills, the most saves, and other aspects of it. So it allows users to really, you know, my, my son's an avid Fortnite player, and and the reality is he, he loves to win, uh, but he also likes to, you know, compete. And I think this provides an opportunity to be able to you know, use the game itself and the aspects of the game to create uh, opportunities for folks to compete and, and you know, win, win prizes, win money with their friends. Yeah, it's a cool, it's a cool function, and Battle Royale games are... So interesting, because like you mentioned, it's one versus 99 other people, or two versus a bunch of others, depending if you play duos or squads, but you can't win every game. And so there is that aspect of, okay, I finished top 10, like, did I want to win? Of course, but I played well, I had a good game. You can't win every single time, and it's foolish to believe that you can. And so it has those sort of like placement things, like, okay, top five, not bad. Not bad. Versus other games, it's like I win or I lose, and I'm either happy or I'm sad. Right, and the game allows allows leaderboards to be developed of different aspects of the game. And so the reality is, you may not have the most wins on the leaderboard, but you may have the most hits, the most kills, the most some other aspect of the game, which can be ranked and justified. Definitely, yeah. It, it's important to have all those different stats and. Uh, some games do and some games don't. Rocket League, for example, would be one that I think would be tough to do this. You have goals scored, you could do saves, I guess, but the there's just not a lot of stats that go into it, and that's ultimately what drives Daily Fantasy in most cases. It's yards, it's catches, it's touchdowns, it's all these different aspects, and football is probably the most uh, simple sport of all the Daily Fantasies. Um so there are some big competitors in the Daily Fantasy space for Infamy, uh, DraftKings being the big one that offers League of Legends Daily Fantasy. Do you think we see DraftKings and FanDuel end up building out some more esports opportunities? They're both just barely dipping their toes into it right now. Or is there a big opportunity for a young company like Infamy that can move quicker to really grab up some market share before these giants can you know, get their feet under them? Well, the one good thing about esports and gaming in general, it's constantly evolving with new games and new opportunities. And so I think there's opportunities for companies like Infamy to build the niche, to build the following uh, within, you know, the, the scope of the 800-pound gorillas like FanDuel's and DraftKings. So I think um, from two standpoints, one, there is, there's 
there's still room, and I think it, and that creates more opportunities for companies like Anthony. What's cool about it too is, like you said, the esports industry is always changing. There's always new games being introduced. So while it's going to take DraftKings a long time to upload a new game into their sphere, Infamy could look at something in Team Fight Tactics and the Auto Battler genre, or uh, look at something in Rainbow Six Siege, something that isn't even on DraftKings' radar because it's just too much for them to do. And while DraftKings might have League of Legends and probably CSGO in the future, they might have to stop there because there's just no way for them to keep up with the rapidly changing uh, esports industry. Well, again, I think it comes down to focus. You know, I, I think with large companies like Jeffrey and Bandle, they're, they're generating significant revenue opportunities in existing traditional sports. Again, in order to move into other verticals, it takes more expertise, more staffing, more capital. And I think the reality is, I think, do they have the ability to do that? Absolutely. Uh, but does that provide an opportunity for others? Absolutely. Definitely. I think that's the the esports industry as a nutshell. As so many different companies come and look at it and start to do some work in esports, uh, there's always opportunities at the lower levels where there's still pretty big audiences to be reached at your uh, mobile games, uh, different leagues that pop up in different countries, different regions that are growing big. Like right now, India is huge with PUBG Mobile. So many organizations going into that market, which is you know, 1.1 billion people. So a uh, pretty big market you've got over there as well. It's really interesting time to be in esports as people just, it's such a global phenomenon that it almost feels like a gold rush in some ways as people just rush to these different areas and try and capture these different titles. And there'll be some, uh, some failures along the way, but there'll also be plenty of successes when we look back in 20 years. Absolutely, absolutely. And hopefully some of those successes are at Esports Fast Pitch uh, later this month on February 28th. Where can they check out that event? Tickets still on sale? Yeah, we have, we have some limited tickets left. Uh, they can go to esportsfastpitch.com. Uh, we have general mission. We have some VIP tickets. And there's uh, probably one or two vendor slots left. But uh, we expect to sell out. And, uh, and we're really excited. We're actually partnering uh, with City Garden Grove, California. They're passionate about building a tech and any sports and gaming uh, hub in that city. And uh, and so we are excited about that partnership and working with them. Awesome. It should be a really cool event. I'm not sure if Mark, uh, the CEO of Esports Network, who is one of the investors who's going to be there, is going to bring me out to it, but I wish he does. If you're going to this event and you see Mark, tell him how much you love the podcast and maybe he'll give me a raise. Well, he's scheduled to be on the panel, so I would encourage you to... Uh, have, have, him take, have you take along with him? I want to. I want to. It'd be a lot of fun. I've got a trip planned in February already, but I should be free by February 28th. And now I'm in Vegas, so it's just a just a short hop away. So thank you very much, Scott. This was Scott Kelly. He's the CEO of Black Dog Venture Partners, uh, leading the esports fast pitch on February 28th in Orange County. Thanks so much, Scott. Thank you.